This episode is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. Logos Bible Software is by far my favorite and most used Bible study tool. I use it for sermon prep, personal Bible study, and it's where I've chosen to buy my books and build my theological library. In Logos, your books aren't just books, but they're integrated with a host of tools that not only enhance the value of those books, but empower your study of scripture. Listeners of this podcast can get a special discount on Logos by following my unique link in the show notes. And in addition to that discount, they're going to go ahead and throw in a free five books for you. If you're unsure, go ahead and follow that link anyways, because there's also a free version of Logos that you can get. That's right, free. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and I am here again today with Mark Ward. Welcome once again to the podcast, Mark. It's great to be back. And today we are continuing our conversation on scripture. Uh, We've been talking about uh, different subject matter related to scripture and the doctrine of scripture. Um, I believe the last episode we have released here will be on the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. We've also talked about the authority and canon of Scripture. And now today we want to talk about Scripture's sufficiency. Um, And as we like to do, it's always helpful to define our terms and say, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about Scripture being sufficient? Mark, do you mind helping us out here as we begin our discussion um, by by maybe giving us a definition or description of what we mean by Scripture being sufficient? Yeah, the whole conversation that we've had over bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture, of the Bible, has for me just reinforced how much I rely on one theologian, John Frame. Mm-hmm. He's given the simplest and most direct and, for me, helpful definitions in a lot of areas of bibliology. So I feel sort of bad, like you're supposed to be super widely read, and I could, I'm could i supposed to quote bunches of theologians, but the one that always comes to mind that's actually the most useful is Frame, and this is what he says. My basic definition of sufficiency, this is from his book, The Doctrine of the Word of God. He says, Scripture c- contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. We don't need any more in order to live a life of godliness and obedience. That's the basic definition of sufficiency. Yeah. Um, And one of the questions um, that immediately at least comes to my mind when we talk about the idea of Scripture being sufficient is this idea of sufficient for what? And there's probably different layers and nuances of what we mean and don't mean by that. Do you mind maybe unpacking a little bit of what we mean, like it's, it's sufficient for what exactly? Like the, the counter examples might be things like we've talked about before, like does scripture teach me how to fix the pipes under my sink and do plumbing? Or does scripture teach me how to make a pizza or things like that? And we would say, well, there, yeah, there's not an appendix for a pizza recipe in the back. So what exactly do we mean by sufficient, uh, sufficiency? And in some ways we're talking about the domain of its sufficiency. Yeah, actually, when I was a teenager and got my first job working at a pizza joint, somebody gave me a pizza maker study Bible and it did have that in the back. So you're not quite right. Oh, wow. No, that was that was a complete lie. I made that completely up. 
Um, <laughs> there, there are different study Bibles that have different stuff in the back, but no, as far as the uh, actual inspired text goes, no pizza recipes that, not that biblical scholars have discovered so far anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I t- t- the fact that you use the word plumbing uh, makes me think that you were reading John Frame again, too. Yeah, yeah, because, he, I think he threw out that example. Yeah, he said that, you know, sometimes we want to say Scripture is sufficient for religion or preaching or theology, mm-hmm. and this is quoting him, but not for such things as auto repairs, plumbing, and dentistry. But if you go back to his definition, scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. You can say scripture does contain all the divine words that the plumber needs to do his job in a way that pleases the Lord Mm -hmm. and all the divine words that the theologian needs. So it's just as sufficient frame says for plumbing as it is for theology. The difference is the level of specificity mm-hmm. uh, and the level of detail. But in a general way, the Bible does speak to the work of a plumber. And just as the theologian, I was actually just working on an article um, related to this topic. No, I was reading an article that I had already written. Um the theologian has to look to the world outside the text in order to interpret the text properly. So, for example, if I read a very controversial text and a difficult one um, in one of the pastoral epistles, she will be saved through childbearing. Um, and if I think, oh, I wonder if that means that no woman will, no Christian woman will ever die in childbirth. It's appropriate for me to look to my experience outside the Bible and say, well, you know, that has, that has happened. There, yeah. there were women who were definitely Christians who unfortunately, sadly died during childbirth. Well, that's probably not a good interpretation. Am I denying the sufficiency of Scripture? No. Scripture is still my ultimate authority. And if that's what Scripture said, then, you know, I'd believe it. Um, but I, I must look outside Scripture to help me interpret Scripture. Well, it's actually similar with the plumber. He has all the divine words that he needs, but he needs to be looking to other sources of information as well that ultimately, you know, are provided by God through his goodness and providence, whether it comes to the manuals provided by, I don't know, plumbing I'm not really that great at, but manuals provided by the manufacturer of some, you know, device or the uh, the codes out there or just his experience learning how the world works. Um, to say that scripture is sufficient is not to say that it's the only source of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's the only source of divine words and the and a sufficient and, and those divine words are sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness, for obeying God. Yeah. I think uh, when I was reading in frame, it may have been frame or someone else. Um, but the idea that we, still need the sufficiency of scripture does not deny you know that we use reason when we interpret scripture like we're using means even to um in some way you might say access the authoritative message of scripture um and we for example uh biblical scholars who learn greek and hebrew like we are using Greek and Hebrew to interpret the Bible, and our translations are dependent on a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. So it's not even to deny that there are even access points to Scripture through, you know, necessary um, places of education and learning. Um, 
And of course, folks who have translations can depend on those as well. But from a broad scale, it's not to deny these other tools and these other things we use to interpret scripture or that there is knowledge elsewhere. What we speak of when we say general revelation or natural revelation, that there are things that God has revealed to us, revelation, that are generally known and made known in nature by natural means outside of the supernatural uh, gift of scripture. So like just being able to see the sciences or things like that. Um, it's not to deny those things, but I like how some of the theologians put it. It may have been Frame or someone else I was reading where it's the sufficiency with respect to the authoritative word of God um, for what we need to to be saved, to have faith in Christ, and to glorify God through godly living. So it doesn't mean it necessarily speaks to every single matter with perfect specificity, but generally, but on a broad scale, it does speak to every matter, as you said, I think, in a previous episode, as all matters should be lived and conducted to the glory of God, it does speak to all matters. And as the as a as an authoritative source, it is sufficient, even if it doesn't speak with specificity to every single matter of information we might ever want to come across. It is sufficient as an authoritative source um, for yeah. godliness. And even in the what you were mentioning, um, the uh, the natural revelation. It's the Bible that tells us that we can look to mm -hmm. nature to tell us things about God. It says that God's, in Romans 1, God's eternal power and divine nature, those two huge truths are clear just by looking at nature. And Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day, they're pouring forth speech. They're saying something to us. They're saying there is a God of, you know, of great uh, eternal power who made us uh, and then you can get more specific with um, with this argument that the Bible itself tells us to look at nature there is a somewhat obscure passage in Isaiah Isaiah 28 that talks about um, the farmer and kind of uses him as an illustration but still there's a really profound scriptural truth here it says, it asks, does does the person who plows, does the man who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? And the implied answer is, well, no, you don't plow all year round. You plow once a year and then, you know, plant your plants. Then it says, when he has leveled its surface, does he, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? Okay, so it's describing what a farmer does, what my wife is actually doing right now <clears throat> out in our yard, planting rows and rows of good stuff. My wife's doing produce and flowers. And then it has this interesting comment, um, for he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Hmm. And you're thinking, well, where does the Bible tell us to scatter dills so common and put wheat in rows and not to plow continually? And it even goes further and talks about other practices that uh, any common farmer back in those days would have known to do and not to do. And it says at the end, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. If you ask, how does the Lord teach a farmer how to do his work? It is through what I like to call, um, this is kind of, as far as I know, unique to me, and that makes me a little bit scared, but the general revelation of experience. If over and over again, I notice that if I put a certain amount of water on a seed, it won't grow. But if I give more or give less, it will. Well, 
God is teaching me through nature a truth about nature. Mm-hmm. So when I'm the overall argument in this part of the discussion here is that the Bible itself validates the existence of other sources of knowledge and even of authority, like the, it gives the government authority. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't put anything above God's words. God's words are ultimate. And again, sufficiency is we have all the divine words that we need. Yeah. So maybe to, I'll, I'll be a little bit technical here and then I'll try to break it down. But for those who have listened to previous episodes where we talked about sort of a presuppositional apologetic, or you might think of it almost like a presuppositional revelational epistemology, a way of knowing how we know what we know. In other words, so what epistemology means. It, it, from what I'm understanding, you're arguing that um, even as we look to outside sources and we don't neglect out sources of knowledge outside of scripture, general of general revelation and things like that, nonetheless, scripture actually, as the highest authority, even gives us indication to look to those things as valid means of knowing. And so it's not somehow that these things outside of scripture validate scripture. Um, rather, right. scripture actually, and specifically God, as he speaks to us in scripture, is the most foundational foundation of being able to know and what knowledge is and what truth is. Um, and in that, and actually in scripture, we find validation for seeing knowledge elsewhere. So hopefully that explanation I gave broke down some of that terminology, but the idea of yeah. scripture as a sufficient authority, um, a sufficient, uh, communication from God, authoritative communication from God, even within its own, um, categories tells us to look at other things. And when we, when we seek to, like some have said, all truth is God's truth. So we can see truth in scripture and outside scripture. We want to, um, as we see those not only being compatible, but then integrated, we give credence to scripture as the highest, as, as the highest right. authority when, when relating it to other domains, because of course we are finite and we make mistakes and sometimes our knowledge is limited or corrupted as sinful beings. Right. You have in your notes uh, same thing that framed as a discussion from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm sure everybody, I hope everybody who listens to the podcast doesn't ever think that our appeal to any confession uh, is a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. We've said it enough times, I think, in our authority discussion and, and certainly in this one, that God's words are ultimate. But we wouldn't be having a podcast and you wouldn't be having me on, you wouldn't be having others on, and if if God hadn't said, Ephesians 4, that he's given teachers to his church. So mm-hmm. one of the teachers he's given to his church is the set of men who put together this confession, and this was so wise. I really do love what they said, and Frame goes through it in detail. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Uh, the most famous phrase from that little paragraph is definitely, by good and necessary consequence. Mm-hmm. Because then you get into the details, into the sometimes into the gray areas and the weeds— um, a bunch of gray weeds at times. What counts as good consequence? What counts as necessary consequence? Uh, but 
and people even start to think, well, does, doesn't that, doesn't deriving things from Scripture by good and necessary consequence deny its sufficiency? Because if God needed to tell us not to pirate, you know, software um, or music or movies, he would have told us. But no, you can derive from thou shalt not steal mm-hmm. that principle. You can derive no internet porn from Jesus' statements about lust and the Ten Commandments on adultery. Mm-hmm. Um, the more the more you have to bring in from experience um, and the more Bible passages you, you have to put together to come to a good consequence, the less necessary those consequences actually usually become. And so good Christians will start to recognize areas of uh, allowable disagreement among them. They recognize there were so many factors that went into my decision on, you know, should I watch this given movie or, um, you know, what is the appropriate economic policy for our township right now that um, they, they, they're very humble about they should be very humble about their conclusions. Um, one way to acknowledge the sufficiency of Scripture is to back off when Scripture has not spoken in exhaustive detail and to acknowledge that you're having to bring in other sources of knowledge. Right, yeah. I do appreciate, um, that's probably one of my favorite lines in the Westminster Confession. I feel like I I go back to this particular section quite a bit because I just feel like it's very helpful um, you talked about kind of hedgings, I think, in a previous episode of like looking at a confession as a as like just every word being so helpful in terms of giving us these nuances um, is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life. Like so we get these specific categories um, and, yeah. and the, the what's du- what's most directly sort of at play here. And it's either expressly set down in scripture, it's explicitly said, um, like it just tells us straight up, or there's also this area where we derive things um, through through good argument and good reason. And like you said, it's it's sort of like we talked about before with uh, using um, Jonathan Lehman's categories of straight line issues versus yes. jagged line issues. Like, I thought of that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some issues feel more straight line. Like it's, it's, it's almost like... From here's the text and here's the issue and it's a pretty neat um, direct line from one to the other. But a lot of areas are jagged to greater or lesser extents. And the greater the extent, in other words, the the more we have to kind of weave in and out by like maybe pulling different principles together or the logic of certain arguments or relating different things and connecting things. Um, we want to obviously utilize good judgment there. But the more we feel that we're actually the more we're coming distant from just what is plain teaching in scripture, the more we should be humble about our judgments. Our judgments could be off, um, but it's not incorrect to make judgments from scripture. Every form of theology is doing that. Almost all systematic theology is really making deductions from the statements of scripture that may not actually be direct directly addressing the specific issue at play, um, like a passage that sort of implies the Trinity, but it's not just coming out and saying, here's the Trinity. Like we are okay going to a passage like that to deduce um, theological content, theological teaching about the Trinity, just as one example. Yeah, my pastor of 18 years back in South Carolina preached a couple messages that where he used an extended metaphor. This is actually pretty uncommon for him. He was a very 
an excellent preacher and focused on expositing individual Bible texts mostly, but sometimes he would pull in a theological way, in a systematic theological way, pull things together. He preached a series of messages briefly on the two closets. I just said a series and think and Siri jumped in and wanted to um, contribute to our discussion. And, and, and he, he says, it, there are two closets, okay, you can imagine for making decisions, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but just as an example of the kinds of biblical uh, reasoning and logical reasoning that we bring to bear on these difficult decisions you've got the lawful closet and the unlawful closet but just as one example he said you've got different shelves in these closets and let's say there's a particular choice maybe to uh to beat a particular video game this wasn't his example i'll give it as mine and not all, you could put that in the lawful closet, let's say. <clears throat> you know, it's not sexually explicit or, you know, you know, luridly violent. It's, it's lawful, a lawful pleasure for the Christian. But you've got a shelf in that closet, and it has a left-to-right spectrum from unprofitable to profitable. Hmm. So Paul will say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or not all things are expedient. You know, I've got to consider what my end goals in this life are. And that's definitely, you know, something that the Bible speaks to, and then use that to evaluate um, a given choice that I might make. So, Scripture speaks to us with different levels of specificity. It'll say, it'll give, you know, great specifics uh, about um, sexual morality, for example. Um, We know for certain, you know, you can marry only one wife um, righteously and um, only death can part you. But then it'll give general statements like that a woman ought to, uh, it uses the word modesty. This is a Bible word. It's fought over in our culture. What does that even mean? Um, But that is a very general principle that requires me to look at my culture and look at my world and maybe look at my own body and um, evaluate how do I how do I obey this given passage. So within the Bible itself, there are different levels of specificity. On the specific rules, I'm going to follow them. But with the general things, don't conform yourself to the world. A woman ought to attire herself modestly. Um, all kinds of others don't love the world. Um, that there's a that's a large category calling for a lot of thought and and carefulness on my part for application. Yeah. Um, let me ask some follow up questions just on sort of what we mean by sufficiency as we unpack this um, subject um, or this this topic that maybe will help illuminate some things as well. Is um, first of all, we already kind of answered this a little bit, but we'll, we'll park here. Um, does this mean we can derive? from scripture, everything that we would ever want or need to know. And I guess that word need is chosen carefully. You can interpret that as you, as you want. And, and how, what would be, maybe be some scriptures you would use to answer this or theological principles? Yeah, I think one of my first thought is actually to go to the Proverbs and the statements in Proverbs about seeking wisdom, seek for her as for hidden treasure. And I've given the illustration in preaching many times. You know, if I said there's a $100 bill taped under one of your chairs 
and whoever gets it first gets it. Go. You know, there would be a mad scramble inside the church building and people would be looking for those that $100 bill. Um, that is the kind of attitude that I'm supposed to have toward uh, wisdom. Hmm. I'm supposed to seek for her as for a hidden treasure. And get wisdom, get understanding, it says. And um, that's obviously available in Scripture, you know, first and foremost of all, and in an authoritative way. But when I went to school for a lot of years, 1985 to technically 2012, um, that was a verse that was guiding me, especially toward the end when I started to be more aware of what I was doing and why I was doing it. I sat in those classes and read those books because the Bible told me to seek wisdom. And I've always felt that it was appropriate, even though those sources of wisdom, every one of those books was fallible. It wasn't inspired if I wasn't studying the Bible. Every one of my teachers was fallible. Yet still, a search for wisdom and understanding and the general appreciation that a book like Proverbs has towards human teachers, that Ephesians 4 again gives us towards human teachers, shows me that I am supposed to look for wisdom from others. There are simple other verses like um, that, that tell me to seek out counsel from wise people. Those who walk with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Again, implies there's something I'm supposed to learn from other people mm-hmm. um, that isn't isn't just that they're quoting scripture verses to me, although that's certainly included. So we can't. I don't. I think scripture tells us that we're not supposed to derive literally everything we'd ever need to know from the Bible. I, you know, I've I've got to figure out how to pump up the basketball for my child, or he's going to cry. That's not in the Bible, like you said. The pizza recipe's not there, so the Bible's more careful than that. It it tells me to look for wisdom elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, even like you were saying before, like you know, we have to we learn languages, and to, in order to read my English Bible, I learn English. Like, um, it, it there's a certain sophistication to what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture, and it's helpful not to oversimplify it um, because then you can in some ways you can present sort of a rather straw man portrait of sufficiency that is easily toppled by some of the uh, objections that we face to it even today Um, right so um, my mind goes to like Deuteronomy 29 29 where um, the it speaks in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law that there is a there is at least a setup sort of a categorical difference between the things that God has revealed to us for example in that passage most likely through his law things that we are readily then able to to do to obey um, at least we have the choice to do those things um, and they're they're known to us in that sense versus there are things at least according to that verse that are quote unquote the secret things things that belong to god things that we don't know um that are not privy to us as human beings um and there's other examples of course as well so uh the sufficiency of scripture doesn't i guess i would say doesn't mean the exhaustive uh nature of that scripture teaches like says every bit of information there is but it's sufficiently it's sufficient in in its ability to speak authoritatively to those things that are necessary for for faith and and godliness and salvation and there's a practical application i can draw from this real quick and i have heard christians occasionally say 
you know, all I need is the Bible. Um, I don't need to read a bunch of books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I hear them occasionally. I've heard people say that humbly, like, you know, I've been reading too many books outside the Bible and I need to get back to you know, this year. I'm just going to read the Bible. Well, I can honor that. Mm-hmm. But usually what I hear is people saying, frankly, in my my feeling is arrogantly that, well, I don't need all those human teachers who write books and people who pursue that sort of thing are wasting their time yeah, yeah. Or, or worse. And uh, I, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. And I already mentioned Proverbs and Ephesians 4 multiple times and their encouragement to me to look for wisdom. Um, I, I think it's those people who need to hear that that's not what the sufficiency of Scripture means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the fact, like you pointed out, the fact that we've been appealing to different authors, we ourselves are attempting to teach by doing this. Um, we're appealing to confessions. And again, we're not holding up as, as good Protestants. We're not holding up the confessions as ultimate authorities, as um, sort of the these are like in principle inerrant like from god inspired like documents um but we we value the confessions as really really helpful summations of like i love reading good confessions because they're just really helpful summaries and they're from men um and and people from across church history who have thought well about these things um so we don't reject i mean even as you pointed out like scripture itself our sufficient ultimate authority teaches us to seek teachers and to learn from others. Um, we don't reject tradition. Um, we don't reject um, teaching offices in Scripture or other believers or wisdom. Um, but we just don't look to it as as that highest authority. And we, we see it as, as falling underneath Scripture and subject to Scripture itself. Yeah, I feel like I probably have said this too many times, and I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast interviews with you yet, though, but I really distinctly recall being like a 10-year-old, which is the age of my oldest son now, and he's precocious, he loves to read, he's a big-time reader, reads way more than I get to because, you know, he doesn't have responsibilities like I do, but I remember thinking to myself, boy, how wonderful it would would be to live on a deserted island and... uh, and just have a Bible and and encounter it for the first time so I could read it fresh without any presuppositions. I wouldn't have known that word back then, but any predispositions given to me by a tradition is how I'd put it now. And I think that was entirely wrongheaded. For mm-hmm. one thing, that is impossible. That never happens to anybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes to the Bible with some ideas already. You, you can't not do that. And you can't come to the Bible without some loves in your heart, either for God or against God. So um, I've observed, and postmodernism has helped us observe this in ourselves, that there is nobody who is traditionless, who's sort of free-floating and can have an objective viewpoint on Scripture. And the postmodern's answer to that is, well, then we're stuck within whatever tradition we find ourselves in. And I say, no, my God is gooder than that. He does. I'm not imprisoned here. Instead, I'm going to see my tradition as as much as possible a resource. And therefore, I want to pick the very best tradition I can. I want to, in my case, I've especially wanted to pick the tradition 
that produces people who actually know the Bible. That's what gives me confidence that the broadly speaking Protestant Reformed tradition mm-hmm. is where I belong. Yeah. These are the people who when when I ask them a question, out comes Bible mm-hmm. and the lay people know the Bible and they listen to podcasts like this and they buy books uh, and they study their Bibles. This tradition is not a bad thing. They're going back to scripture, the actual authority. So that even the yeah. tradition is surround is actually like revolving around scripture, you might say. Yeah, and it, the tradition is not saying, "Look at me, look at me." Yeah. The tradition is saying, "Look at scripture, look at scripture." Yeah, um, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but um, no, yeah, I, I, maybe two ways I'm thinking about this, even as we talk, like succinct ways we can specify some of these nuances, is that we value tradition, but we don't place it on par with scripture. We don't. Treat it in such a way that even if it's only functionally, even if we're not saying this explicitly, but even if functionally we put it at a place where it's treated equal to scripture and by implication, oftentimes what that means is it actually uh, supplants scripture. So I think of Jesus's words to the Pharisee that you have, I can't remember the exact wording here, but you have made your traditions, you treat your traditions as the teachings of God, or you make void the 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 you make void, void the, the word, word of, of God, God by, by your, your tradition, yeah, by the doc, uh, your the doctrines of man, yeah. Um, or another way we could put it in terms of as we think about the domain of of scripture sufficiency. On the one hand, it may sound like we're doing double speak because we're saying, well, it doesn't necessarily address everything, and yet we also say, well, yeah, it does address everything um, because everything right. has to do with the glory of God. So it. Right. Everything is literally in view, um, and yet it's not telling us how to make pizza. So what are, what do we mean? Is it yes or is it no? And you might put it this way. That's, it doesn't speak to everything exhaustively with exhaustive specificity, and yes. yet it does speak comprehensively. It speaks yes. to everything. So it includes everything comprehensively, but not with an exhaustive specificity about everything or even to address everything directly. Right. Um, you made me think of John Frame's buddy Vern Poitras. I run their website, frame-poitras.org. There's a lot of great stuff on there. And uh, Poitras has a book called Symphonic Theology. It's free on his website. He's just such a godly man. He gives away all his books for free yeah, PDFs, on his I website. Think. Yeah. And some of them are on, this is actually uh, HTML. I happen to know because I coded it. And it he has this chapter that I've gone back to so many times and just the title helps me words and precision. And he points out that not everything God says is said as precisely as possible. So I grew up watching Star Trek, the next generation. And one of the you know running gags was if you ask commander data, the Android robot, what time is it? You know, he's going to tell you down to the millisecond if he can, uh, or, you know, what's the temperature? He's going to give you way more information than you intend. And it's humans who who just intuitively know how much information is actually relevant to the purposes of the person who's asking me for information and how much is too much. There's a whole theory in linguistics called relevance theory that um, uses that as a ins- uh, means of insight into communication. And the Bible is like normal human language in that it doesn't over specify it Hmm. tells us how much we need to know sufficiency Hmm. that's interesting i think my wife might say i i lack that quality Uh, (laughs) are you the commander data of your household i i don't think i've ever i don't think i've ever seen what you're talking about but i can uh you ask me a question i might not pick up on exactly what you're after and and tell you way more than you want to know um anyways people who know me close might think that's funny but um 
Another question I wanted to ask, uh, though, on this, maybe one last clarifying question, and um, hopefully this one isn't too tricky, but I think I think this kind of hits our postmodern moment, um, is if scripture is sufficient, does that mean we can always determine with certainty how to act or think on various issues? And what I mean by this is if it doesn't, um, do, wouldn't this deny scripture's sufficiency in sort of a functional sense? Like we could hold it up theoretically that it's sufficient, but if practically it doesn't actually come to bear with any sort of solidness and give me certainty in knowing how to act, like what is God's will for my life in a very specific situation, or should the church give money to missions or invest in a building project instead, or tell me what who to vote for or something like that. Does that mean that scripture is only theoretically sufficient, but not actually realistically sufficient? Maybe I'd say two things if I can keep them both in my head. Yeah. Sometimes that's my problem. This is a little bit of a trickier question, questions. I know. Yeah, this is a this is a tricky one. Well, the first I'm thinking the spirit goes with the word. So God's spirit is the one who uh, inspired the word. And when we talked about perspicuity or clarity of scripture, mm-hmm. we talked about how you know clarity is hard won but um it's won by grace and it's the grace of the spirit illuminating you know opening up my eyes shining light into me spiritually or even mentally intellectually to understand what scripture says so we don't come to scripture as you know fully objective um we have our own sins and limitations and the spirit's presence is necessary for us to really understand and apply rightly but then when you so that that's my first kind of answer my my second is that actually i find the sufficiency of scripture to be a freeing doctrine when it comes to questions like what is god's will for my life what is god's will for the budget of you know our church for this quarter where should we spend our money um if the bible if God has not chosen in Scripture to speak through His Spirit, through the mouth of His prophets and His apostles, in a way that specifies something, then I have some freedom, and He's giving that freedom to me to you know to use within other constraints that I have. I don't have endless amounts of money. That's one of my constraints. I'm probably not the only leader at the church, you know, deciding where money should go. That's one of my constraints. Um, but I don't. In my whole life, um, I guess ever since college when I really started thinking about this, I am kind of a fundamentally confident person. My wife will tell you that. I don't worry a lot about really anything. But one of the reasons I don't uh, is is that um, I've always felt that the, our, our, our Christian culture's use of Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, has been basically right where we've said, if you're concerned to follow God's will, delight in the Lord. And and then you can look at your desires and think, you know, well, if I'm delighting in the Lord, then I can do what I want to do. What do I want to do? Well, when last big decision we made was to move from South Carolina to Washington State. Did I consult scripture? Well, yes, I did. Um, but does scripture tell me specifically whether in 2015 the Ward family should should move? Well, no, it doesn't. But I was delighting in the Lord, and my wife was too. We were following him and walking with him, 
And we asked ourselves, you know, given there are other constraints we have, you know, is this a righteous job that I'm taking? Is this a good church that we're planning to go to? Um, can we follow the Lord here and serve our children? Well, yes, yes, yes. In general, yes. Then let's consult our, des- our desires. Let's do it. And we haven't spent tons of time mooning over that decision. So the sufficiency of Scripture, I, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm kind of hitting it and coming at it through the back door there saying it also means that if God hasn't spoken with specificity Mm -hmm. to something, then we can feel comfortable just applying the general principles and not feeling like, oh man, we missed out because what what we'd really like to have is that appendix in the back that lists out all of my major life decisions for me in advance. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's a really interesting insight. It's not, I wouldn't want somebody to get, I don't think you're communicating it this way at all, but I just wouldn't want anyone to get the impression where it's like, Kind of like if the Bible doesn't talk about it, then we can do whatever we want. But the idea of like, as you said, if I'm delighting in the Lord, if I'm, if, if I'm using wisdom, if I'm, if I'm employing and coming from a position of good character and seeking, uh, to do that, which God would, uh, delight in and desire for his people, um, like there's actually a freeness where scripture is not specific, um, to not sort of bind yourself with the impression that somehow there is a specific directive that you need to be following per se um hopefully that that's clear i i think i think you were clear i just wanted to add that um what well, we don't believe in the perspicuity of mark ward no or, or kirk you know. either yeah <laughs> right um we have, so thank you that's a helpful clarification <laughs> but what would you say um on areas of like interpretation where, where maybe it's not so much what do i do in terms of my own life like find God's will for my life or whatever, as some, as we sometimes like to say, but like say where people disagree on who should be baptized, whether we baptize the, the infants of believers as our Presbyterian uh, brothers and sisters do, or whether we only baptize believers or whether um, we, you know, what we believe about the millennium. Like there's a lot of good Christians that hold the different views about what's going on in Revelation 20, what's that referring to, or whether tongues continue to exist or not. Like there's areas like that where what would you say to someone who says, well, if the Bible is sufficient and if we can't actually come to terms on those things, is it really functionally sufficient to speak to us about those things? I was just writing an article that talked something about this and I wrote, it's one of the more confusing and difficult aspects of maturing in your Christian faith to see that there are Christians with clear spiritual gifts, gifts, some excellent theology whose ministry is a personal blessing, who nonetheless appear to you to persist in rejecting or ignoring clear scripture, or uh, more charitably, or in a, in a, on some issues, this is just the way it is, um, uh, they just disagree with you over something, whether you think it's very significant or not. Um, that is, you know, I've, I found myself saying recently, every group is constantly adjudicating the boundaries of their group. And what do I expect in a world in which everybody, including the Christians who are reading their Bibles, even trying to read their Bibles faithfully and carefully, everybody is both finite and fallen. I'm going to expect some level of disagreement over interpretation. And here's here's where the Bible helps me with this. You've got different categories of disagreement. You've got people who will claim the name of Christ, but actually are preaching another gospel. And Paul in Galatians 1 says, let those people be accursed if they're preaching another gospel, no matter what 
no matter if no matter if they agree with you on some key things, if they're preaching another gospel, they're wrong. Then you've got people like the Pharisees. We mentioned that verse where some translations say, you know, Jesus has the, uh, says to them, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. So it is possible to be claiming belief in scripture and yet to be nullifying it. But you've also got Romans 14 and other passages that indicate that there are these areas, these gray areas, that there's some call, sometimes called adiaphora, you know, matters that are of not not of consequence, um, where people disagree, and some of those matters that aren't of great consequence still end up being pr- uh, matters of pretty practical consequence. Are you going to, for example, you know, I've 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 worshipped with Christians, for example, who don't celebrate Christmas. They it violates their consciences, and because of Romans fourteen, I've never felt. Um, that I have to persuade them that they've got to celebrate this day the way I do. Paul will just say, those of you who celebrate, celebrate it to the Lord. Those of you who don't, that's fine, as long as we're not causing division and strife. And I can think of one particular family that I've known that they did not cause division or strife over this. That was just their personal practice. Um, So I've got the Bible itself telling me that there is a a disobedient level of... um, uh, of of interpretation, that is, you can interpret the Bible disobediently, but then it is possible and even likely that I'm going to run into Christians who who derive you know uh, some different applications from the same text that I do, and because of our mutual fallenness and finiteness, that is something I can expect and something I'm going to have to learn to live with. And Christian maturity means figuring out which are the issues where it's really important that I, you know, this is a hill I've got to die on. Um, And those people aren't just, you know, sincere and sincerely wrong. They're actually sinning in their bad interpretation and application of scripture. And and where can I say, on the other hand, no, these are faithful brothers and sisters who simply take a different opinion on something where the Bible leaves room. That was maybe a too long answer to your question. Is that where you were going with things? um, I was going wherever you wanted to go, but as uh, as you were speaking and and I'm I'm thinking maybe if there was something I could say to summarize or to add some perspective to even what you said, I think on the one hand, I would would maybe say two quick things, is on the one hand, I think we're so conditioned nowadays, at least some of us in our postmodern sort of climate is to be so conditioned to think in terms of like a reader response perspective. And what I mean by that is like very much how we experience things and sort of you, you start at it from our perspective moving forward. Um, but I would just want to caution and say, yes, our experience is valid in it. And we need to think about scripture sufficiency in, 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 in as much as we're able to actually understand it, obviously. Um, but our weaknesses and our sinful tendencies to disbelieve things or to reject things those don't change the qualities that are in scripture. Like scripture's qualities right. are not dependent on us and what I do with them. And so there's right. a certain level of caution I think we need to have in a question like this um, to not fully give over to sort of those postmodern uh, assumptions. Like scripture can Agreed. stand objectively with these qualities. The other thing I would say too is I like how immediately when you went to perspicuity because as we look at these, and by that we mean clarity of scripture, because um, when we look at these doctrines of scripture's sufficiency and authority and perspicuity and inerrancy and inspiration, all these, we're not dealing with these as little, like in an ice cube tray where each ice cube is its own little pocket. 
um, but they're all interrelated and connected. So sure. we don't think of Scripture's sufficiency isolated from its perspicuity. Its sufficiency functions as it as it is also perspicuous, as it is also clear. And if we were just dealing with its sufficiency and it wasn't clear at all, well, I suppose that would be a different conversation, but that's not what we're dealing with. So I think those, I like how you went there and I just want to highlight that last thing because I think that was assumed in what you were saying, but I just want to pinpoint that. Um, Agreed. I want to, we'll get in in a little bit towards the end of our time here and I don't want to keep you too long, but let me survey some uh, some broad scale subjects. The first one is where would you go to establish this doctrine in scripture? And you, you've already mentioned some, but what would be maybe be some of the most pertinent, pertinent scripture passages on this subject? For time's sake, I mean, I, I tend to think there really is that one key passage that we've gone to over and over again throughout mm-hmm. our discussion. Second Timothy three, maybe 14 through 17, but starting at verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or uh, equipped for every good work. Yeah. And that that last phrase in particular, equipped for every good work, is I think the main place where Protestants have drawn this doctrine of sufficiency. Are there any good works that Scripture fails to equip us for? And the answer from this verse appears to be no. It's got all these areas of profitability for us. It teaches us, it reproves us, and then corrects us, putting us on the right path, and then trains us positively in righteousness. And as I look back at my life, I ask, has this been true in my experience? You know, not just in my theology. And I'd say, well, yeah, definitely. There's no point in my life that I can look back on where I have to say, man, Scripture really let me down. I really wanted to do the right thing, and I looked and looked in the Bible, and it just wouldn't tell me what to do. The the couple major times in my life when I really had an important decision to make that often did hinge on Bible teaching directly. I I did what Luther did. I hammered on the Bible. He said, I beat on Romans until it yielded its truth to me. And that is, that's been my experience too. I've never been let down by believing that the Bible is able to equip me for every good work. So 2 Timothy 3 is just absolutely essential to a, a proper doctrine of of the Bible. Yeah, I think you could. Um, I I teach at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission on Wednesdays. Um, not right now because of the coronavirus, but typically. Sure. Um, and this is a passage that I oftentimes start off start at for the doctrine of Scripture, and I feel like you can establish almost every sort of right. aspect of the doctrine of Scripture from this passage alone. Um, but yeah, how he says, like, it's able to make you wise for salvation. It's sufficient for conveying the message of salvation, as well as then sort of the life as one who is a saved child of God, as it's able to be, uh, that it's, it's, as he says, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, these four sort of categories that are positives and negatives and correctives and edification and all these different things with the end goal that you're you're actually able to be matured for as you said it's it's sufficient that believers would be able to do every good work i mean there's just so much good in that passage um go ahead it's interesting to me just interesting i just wanted to affirm something 
nice about you, Kirk, that the rescue mission has come up now several times in our discussions. And I was the pastor of an outreach congregation that reached, let's just say, a similar demographic for five and a half years. And it had a profound impact on me. It actually, one of the most profound impacts that it had is that it really galvanized me when it came to Bible translation. Hmm. I I actually felt real righteous indignation toward people who would insist that these functionally illiterate mm-hmm. uh, folks would have to read the King James Version. Mm-hmm. And when I found an easy read version, the New International Reader's Version, and handed it to them, it just radically changed things. They they actually like kind of stopped being functionally illiterate. They, ac- illiterate. they actually mm-hmm. could function in reading Scripture. So um, I love the idea that theology cannot and should not be divorced from the needs of the church and the needs of people. And so I love it that you are involved in reaching out to people that, you know, probably in your daily life, you you wouldn't have a reason to come across otherwise. And I, it seems to me like they're shaping you, that experience is shaping you in positive ways. Yeah, undoubtedly. Like it, it's really, uh, it's really fun and interesting to do theology in that context where yeah. Um, in many ways, you have to think about how to can how to convey it to maybe someone who hasn't encountered these things before, or from a from a non someone who maybe has uh, cases against Christianity, and it, it presses you to really know your theology. Um, but I, of course, just love teaching it as well. Two things I would want to address. Just uh, if we if we didn't touch on these before we we were done, I would I would feel a little bit weird. So two things would be I think theologically. There's also just the reality of trusting in God's faithfulness. And if we can use this term to refer to God, his competence in actually being uh-huh. able to convey his message, that we actually, one of the right. reasons we hold to the sufficiency is because we we trust God's ability to communicate um, and to not fail in his communication. So like I think of I, Isaiah, I almost said Isaiah, like my uh, professor, Dr. Uh-huh. Carson, used to say, I think that's the British way of saying it. And I go 50-50. Right. But anyways, Isaiah or Isaiah, I think it's 55, you may remember, where it talks about as the rain comes down and it brings forth fruit, so God's mm-hmm. God's word does not go forth and fail, that God accomplishes. And what he we, what he intends to accomplish by his word, and of course that assumes um, that, that it is going to be sufficient for those ends. Um, and then the other thing I would want to throw out is historically, it's always helpful for me, especially when it comes to the doctrine of scripture for whatever reason, um, as well as maybe the doctrine of salvation, is to think of this category in light of some of the um, some of its historical shaping, um, where it comes out of in terms of the Reformation. Again, it doesn't mean that the doctrine emerged in the Reformation. The, the doctrine comes from scripture itself, um, right. but it was sort of... Uh, highlighted and it was it, people were forced recovered yeah it was recovered and people were forced to grapple with it and refine its articulation in the reformation yes. and so the sufficiency of scripture it was one of the biggest differences between protestants those who hold to scripture as a highest authority versus the roman catholic or uh the papists those who who look to rome and center the church in rome and hold to a sort of magisterial tradition uh, an official church teaching that in many ways functionally then sits over scripture. And so obviously one of the differences is where, whereas the Roman Catholics would say, well, you need the church to tell you what to believe. You need our traditions. Yeah. 
Protestants one of the dividing lines, and there wouldn't be this dividing line if it wasn't for the sufficiency of Scripture. The dividing line, uh, at least one of the places on that line, is the sufficiency of Scripture. Because if Scripture wasn't sufficient, well, gosh, I suppose we do need the church to tell us then. But if Scripture objectively in its own qualities is sufficient, notwithstanding tradition, notwithstanding good teachers and translation and all those things, but as a as a highest authority, um, it's able to it's able to be that because it's sufficient. Yes, Amen. Yeah, I can't add anything to that. I just only that my heart really leaps uh, to hear the doctrine articulated because I do believe it's true. Yeah. Let me ask you one closing question, um, and then I'll let you go for sake of time. Here is if you were to give. Uh, one practical area, an implication, maybe like an area of comfort or an area of challenge, if there's sort of one exhortation you'd want to give us that bounces off and in, in, is a necessary consequence, if I can use Westminster's words, <laughs> um, from this doctrine, what would that, what would you leave us with? Um, it's kind of, kind of two aspects of the same answer, maybe, and both will sort of be anecdotal. Uh, the first is just a couple weeks ago, I was in a men's book study, and one of my friends in the church, a uh, sharp guy, you know, but, you know, didn't go to Bible college and wasn't uh, trained formally in seminary or anything. Um, I asked a question. I now not, I now cannot remember exactly what it was, but I do remember that in order to answer it, he had to put together two passages, one of the Old Testament and one of the New Testament. And I just stopped the whole study and I said, just look at what this brother did. Mm. Um, he he used his Bible and he knew his Bible. Um, and that's been my experience in Protestant churches, you know, for all our weaknesses. And don't, I'm sure, I, I'm sure you agree with me, Kirk. Don't hear, nobody out there should hear us saying Protestants are all completely good and Roman Catholics are all completely bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just not true. We're not completely good. You and I, we have our fallenness and finiteness too, but this major strength of ours is that, yeah, actually lay people come away if they've been paying attention and if they do the reading their Bible and praying every day that they ought to, they they come away actually knowing the Bible. And that, that really heartens me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a practical application of the doctrine of sufficiency that you can actually get to know your Bible. Now, that's been a uh, an implication of perspicuity too. Yeah. But then the second thing is... Um, I remember at some point in later seminary or maybe even after I'd graduated, suddenly this this kind of realization dawned on me, and it's even hard to put it into words. But I used to think before that time that there was there must be more answers out there to interpretive conundrums and difficulties in the Bible than I'm aware of. Um, and I'm on a search for those things now, and that's that's probably still true. Um, there's more to learn. There's more to write. The, the God's word is, you know, got great depths to it. But then I I came to a point where, for example, the the slaughter of Jephthah's daughter. Okay, this obscure kind of passage in Judges 11. Did Jephthah actually kill his own daughter? Um, I. In order to answer that question for a Bible lesson that I was teaching, it suddenly hit me, you know, I know everything the Bible has to say about this particular topic. There isn't more to learn. And I think, therefore, I know 
the level of clarity that God has chosen to give this issue, and I can speak accordingly. Um, and that was, if, if that's made any sense, it was really encouraging to me, like, okay, years of Bible study have brought me to the point where I, I can be confident that there's not some other obscure passage that I've missed, because I've read it all, and I've read it all, you know, multiple times, that's, you know, could, could bring to bear on this. No, I, I can just interpret based on the data that I have available to me. Um, and the Bible is sufficient. To, for me, in this case, I I don't need more. So um, I hope that makes some sense. But the the basic upshot is: read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. <laughs> that you can actually make progress in this uh, Bible reading stuff, and can see in experience what you must believe in your theology: that the Bible is sufficient for all the needs you have. Uh, of divine words. So may we then, as 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 those uh, saved by God, the people of God and his children, may we be people who I think of your illustration uh, with a $100 bill under the chair. May we be people who are searching after after wisdom or in this case, even, even scripture itself, that we'd be a people of the book, that we'd be a people who fully believe in the sufficiency of scripture so that it actually functionally transforms us into a people who are devoted to scripture in our practice. Amen. Amen. Amen.